<laughs> See, this is probably I already know these guys. So like, I'm like, well, you know, this is three was ahead. Of course, this is uh, Julian Murdoch. Hi. And uh, next to Julian, we've got John Schaefer. Uh, you may know him from Civilization Five. Uh, currently over at Starbuck. Uh, and next, we've got Chris King from Paradox. Hello, everyone. And next to Chris, we've got uh, Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hi, all. And at the very end, uh, hiding behind Troy, looking coyly at me, uh, is Rob Davio, Hasbro designer and uh, designer of Risk Legacy, which I'm sure many of you have played. Hello. Okay, so returning to my uh, to returning to my original abortive attempt at beginning at, at kicking us off. Uh, so one of the things that you know certainly I feel a lot these days is that strategy games are you know really healthier than they've been in a long time. And I kind of want to ask you guys, you know, what's changed to revitalize a genre that you know just a few years ago I would say a lot of people were kind of dismissing as you know moribund. Who wants to start? I'll start. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think a big part of it is that the industry as a whole has shifted away in, in some ways from the larger publishers. So it, about eight or ten years ago, most games that came out that everybody knew about and people were playing and really enjoying came from EA or Activision or other really big companies. But in the last five or so years, you've seen a lot more smaller publishers and independent developers jumping in just across the board and uh, also in strategy gaming. So that really brings a lot of new opportunities for smaller games that are more unique and don't have huge budgets and don't require selling five million copies of a game. So you can do a lot more. So I think that's, that's had a big role to play. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that can't be uh, underestimated is the the revival of, of board gaming as a group hobby and its effect on strategy games. Uh, because now more people play board games socially, are familiar with them, even much more than when I was through college. And here I am, almost 40, and I have friends who play board games, and they aren't really strategy gamers, but they're into board games. But we have this entire, the last half decade, people playing these games, and they're going to development. They say, I want to be able to play this on an iPad. I want to be able to do this on the computer. So the fact that board gaming has become a social hobby again, which it was in the 70s and the 80s, and then died for a long time. Uh, and now it's coming back. So we're kind of getting this feeding of both design interest from consumers uh, and developers into making, trying to make these experiences deeper or more intuitive or faster. I, I, I'll actually disagree a little bit there. I, I'm, I'm going to say two blasphemous words in one sentence. I think the thing that's probably done more to boost people's attention to strategy games have been the iPad and Facebook. Not because that's the bastion of quality strategy gaming, but because strategy has been so much a part of gaming on those platforms. Yeah, I think that's putting the cart before the horse because people have to develop for those platforms. So those ideas have to have been out there. People want to make these games for these platforms. And Facebook, I do, I do PR for Facebook strategy games. Actually, some of them are working and some of them are not. But iPad, I mean, so many of the games that are on the iPad are translations of board games. Yes. Some aren't. Some aren't. Uh, and I think that reflects an interest in bringing the, these experiences uh, to an audience. And the iPad development, just it's, it's coming out of here. And the iPad is a great tool, and I'm with you on that. I think it's, you've said it's one of the best strategy platform 
in a long time. It has advantage, strategies and advantage that other genres don't have for the iPad, that it's pick up and move. So you can just drag stuff around. You can't do that really well uh, with an FPS. So well, I, think, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just kind of feel like Julian just warped us back like a couple years to what he was saying <laughs> two years ago when he was like, you know, the, when like Facebook's going to be the home of like great strategy. And I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that revolution Yeah, it didn't, has, didn't actually pan out. Yeah, that, that hasn't panned out. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I don't think there's been like this boy, you know, like, you know, um, you know my sister's really into Farmville and, you know, so is her husband. So I think I'm going to play like Civilization. But, uh, I don't think no, that's been happening. But, but I think what has happened is it's opened a lot of people's eyes to strategy games as having like a place and a business model, right? And again, I'm not trying to suggest that Farmville is the future of strategy games or anything like that. Better not, boy. Because I just, you're just going to punch me right off the stage. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think that, I mean, you, you just look at the talent pool that, that's moved towards that market. Now, obviously, would I rather have guys like Brian Reynolds making, you know, a rise of something. Yes, I would. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's kept a generation of designers employed, and now we're starting to see the more serious games and the games that are coming from places like Paradox. Um, those games, I feel like, are really in a golden age. And I, I think you have to say that there's an ecosystem now evolving around strategy that's all the way from the stupid, dumb strategy games on Facebook to the stuff I can't even play that this guy publishes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, I'd just like to say, actually, probably the big thing for PC strategy gaming has been digital distribution. Because if you go back, like, five, ten years, trying to get your hands on a strategy game for PC was a real challenge. I mean, Europa Universalis 2, um, it was released in, like, November 2001, but wasn't going to come out in the UK until April. So I actually had to actually get a US import of the game just so I could get my hands on the game. So what that means, uh, now along comes digital distribution. You can get your game up there. It will reach you, reach globally. It will be on the shelf forever, basically. So all of a sudden, you have this ability to reach a far larger market far easier. So, and the other thing about digital distribution is, as a developer, you actually will earn more money through digital distribution, meaning that as a smaller developer, you either are able to um, you know, make more ambitious projects or a game, for example, like Victoria 2, we would never have considered making before digital distribution came along because it just simply would not have been a big enough you know, market for it. So that definitely you know, allowed strategy gaming to grow, I would say, massively. So, uh, you know, Troy, I think you said one thing a moment ago that I'd be curious to bring Rob in on, uh, where board games kind of went through a dead period. And, uh, you know, I'm too young to remember such an era, of course. Uh, There's just a point where I didn't play board games. But I'm, but I'm curious, you know, as someone who's been working in the, uh, you know, tabletop space for a long time, Rob, whether you've seen sort of a change in the way, you know, people react to strategy games, uh, you know, in board game form. Uh, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing now, I mean, board games never really died. They died as maybe a hobby game in some ways in the, in the 90s into the 2000s, and then with the Euro games and German games coming back and some other things the barriers have started to, to cross between what's a mass market game and what's a, a hobby game, because you can find Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride in Target now. Um, and so I think that's causing a lot of people to question, like, what exactly is a game that your kid wants to play versus family games and family game nights. So there is some change that's, that's taking place over the past couple of years uh, in, the, in the board game space. And, but I really go back to what Julian said about the iPad being this interesting place that kind of feels like a tabletop experience, but Something I like to say is a board game is only, um, can only be as smart as the dumbest person at the table. 
um, <laughs> because everyone has to remember the rules, and you know, you, you, it's, sort, it's sort of self-limiting either on age or interest because everyone has to kind of be thinking what the rules are and, and then how to have a good strategy with those rules. And the iPad is really starting to take some of that burden off of people, just like uh, digital and computer games have, but keep it on a tabletop space. So I'm really interested to see how those things come together. Because it keeps coming up, uh, you know, I just wanted to, I'm really curious, like, you know, how many people here actually have, like, an iPad? You know, I don't. Not as many not, as I would have guessed. Right, yeah. no, and, and that's the thing. Like, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if we tend to overestimate, uh, you know, the impact the iPad has had as a strategy platform. Just because, like, in our circle, we see people with it all the time, and it's like, you know, you know, over at your house, and I see whatever new thing you're obsessed with, and I'm like, that's really cool. But at the same time, when I think about, like, well, you know, what's really what's really exciting about strategy games right now? You know, I guess I'm I'm still really kind of a PC traditionalist and uh, increasingly interested in. Uh, sort of like simpler, faster uh, strategy board games. Well, I mean, there's no question that strategy gaming on consoles, I mean, from my perspective, like my own gameplay, might as well not exist. I mean, I know that there are certainly strategy titles that get released on consoles, particularly on handheld platforms, right? We've seen some great DS, you know, strategy and tactics type games. Um, but for the most part, like real serious strategy games, it's a PC world, right? And you've seen some bridge over into tablet and mobile. But it really is a PC world, and I mean, John, I wanted to talk to you about this a little bit. You know, I mean, do you think that the indie community is what drives strategy going forward? I mean, you started with that sort of premise that it used to just be about the big guys. I mean, is it just an indie world? Is that just the way of the future? I don't. I don't think it's going to be entirely that. I think. I think that will become a larger and larger percentage of what you see, um, partially because of every reason that's been brought up, partially because of digital distribution, which is absolutely huge for PC gaming in general, but strategy gaming also. And um, as tablet PCs become ubiquitous and more and more people have them, you'll see more games designed for that and more games suited for that format. And I think you'll also start to see um, games that come out on both, both of those platforms. And it's going to be really interesting to see what the next 10 years or so uh, holds for the games industry in general because um, it seems like in a lot of ways the major consoles are kind of losing steam. Uh, and pardon, pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Um, and there's a lot of interest in how well uh, the next Xbox and the next PlayStation are actually going to do and some people are very worried about that. And uh, some people genuinely think the future is tablets. So, um, yeah, I think that I don't have any specific answers, uh, but I think the next 10 years will really, really dramatically change gaming, and uh, hopefully for a good, in a good way. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I've got to say, I mean, for how many years has PC game, gaming been dying? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's like the corpse that refuses to just go away. So, you know, being, being someone who's still very much PC orientated, I, I do see the future for strategy games remaining strongly on the PC. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really going to changing is like um, gamer behavior. You know, with the advent of digital distribution, you know, you don't have to buy a strategy game on the first day. You know, it's going to be out, it's going to be up on Steam for however long. So, if the game is of a poor quality and if you feel it's going to need a patch, what players will do is they will wait for that patch to come out before they buy it. So, as a developer, what what we have seen anyway, especially after Hearts of Iron Three, which was, well, people were a bit disappointed with it on release. <laughs> you know, what I mean, I've got to say, you know, there was a few 
comments on the forums, you know. So, you know, that, that, you, know you see this sort of advance towards quality. You know, it used to be, as a developer, you would all, you'd try and add one more feature. You know, that, that's going to be the thing that's going to make my game awesome. And now it's going to be, well, I need to fix these ten more bugs. And that just could be the difference between a great game and a good game and a bad game. So, you know, I think it's kind of like a professionalization, actually, of strategy gaming. Where you know, like you know, people who probably make AAA games kind of laugh at you for not having a priority in bug fixing, but strategy developers are going to go that way. I mean, uh, certainly we have, you know, it was a, it was a wake-up call for us. We then, you know, restructured our projects, put more effort into bug fixing, brought in external QA, and now you see with our latest game, Crusader Kings 2, people far happier, people recommending buying it on release, and all these kind of things, which is good for developers. One thing going going off of uh, John's point about like you know the degree to which strategy game is going to become indie, uh, Paradox has been a really interesting uh, studio for me looking at it these past few years because, and I was wondering actually if you could explain to us a bit about how you like how you allocate your teams essentially because it, it seems to me like you've got you do you do a lot of like smaller niche strategy games rather than like one big franchise that you're running. And I'm curious whether you think that's a model that's going to catch on more at other strategy publishers and studios. Uh, I'd probably say yes. I mean, the thing about, you know, if you are a developer and you have one project on the go, then, you know, this is all your eggs are on one basket. If the project fails, you know, it could be the death of your studio. So at Paradox, we, you know, we'll have, you know, one team developing our next big title, but then you have another team, say, working on an expansion pack or a mini game, you know, which is going to come in a cheaper price. And that, therefore, you know, you always have stuff coming out. And then that way, more, most importantly of all, you have money coming in, which is, you know, is, you know, the absolute life ballad of the industry. If you, if you don't have money, you can't pay the wages, you know, and then that's, that's the end of you. So, yeah, you, I definitely think, you know, that developers will need to start shifting to have more than one project on the go. Uh, so, Rob, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, you know, the, the, publishing, the publishing side of board gaming, uh, yeah. be- because I know that you know, in, in its first golden era, you know, I guess I would say like Avalon Hill was kind of the, it was kind of the titan uh, for, for board gaming, and they went under and, you know, and, and pretty much took hardcore, a lot of hardcore board gaming with them. Uh, when they went down, but I, I wanted you to discuss a little bit, like, you know, how a company like Hasbro fits into the strategy board game space uh, with games like Risk Legacy, with Battleship Galaxies, but then also about like, uh, you know, your prospect, your prospects as like an independent uh, board game designer if you're out there and have um, that way. A lot of questions there. I mean, you know, Hasbro really is in the mass market space, um, with occasional forays from the, the main part where I work. Um, into the hobby market, such as Risk Legacy and Battleship Galaxy. But um, we have Wizards of the Coast. It's sort of our strategy game arm, and they just put out a, a game I really like called War- Lords of Waterdeep, you know, which was a strategy game, and they've put out some sort of dungeon crawl games over the past couple of years. I mean, from my office, we're really focusing on family, so a lot of the strategy games we make are a choice between a shoot or a ladder. And it's sort of like, you know... <laughs> Which is, you know, it is a choice for a three-year-old, and, and it is a strategy and stuff like that. I mean, it's interesting, because we kind of make a lot of people's first strategy games, depending on how you want to define it, because Connect Four is, you know, zero luck, complete strategy game, and watching a kid fumble through and then figure out that the, it's all about the middle column, because that's the only way you can get diagonals and horizontals is, is pretty cool. Um, so Hasbro is, you know, over the years, there's a lot of jokes about it, but has bought a number of companies, and the way that they covered the strategy game space is the acquisition of Wizards of the Coast about 12 years ago in that area. 
and to discuss a little bit the uh, independent side of... Well, I've been with the company for 14 years, so I don't have really a good sense other than people I talk to about what is out there in the independent thing. But I mean, I was just on, um, not on, but attended a Kickstarter panel about an hour ago, and I'm seeing in the same way that digital distribution and the smaller people are working in the digital space, a lot of that's happening in the physical space as well, which is you don't need um, to have a big publisher necessarily to make a game, although I still think there's a place in it because I think a lot of people think, oh, it'd be great, I'll, I'll make a game and really have no idea of what it requires to make something physical. Um, you like plastics and pieces and tooling and cardboard and stuff like that. So I'll be kind of curious to see how the independent people um, manage to overcome that or if any sort of intermediary people come along and sort of say, hey, we can help you with this part of it. I, one thing, you know, I think that is shared between the sort of indie video game scene and strategy and the board game market, um, which I don't have a magic answer for, um, is it's actually now so easy, and I put quotes around that, to put out a small board game or a small card game. And it's also pretty darn easy if you've got a cool idea for a strategy game to kind of do that with a one or two man team. And you look at like Vic Davis's games, you know, Six Gun Saga, you know, I mean, he's, those games are brilliant and they're sort of one man team and they're rough around the edges, but they've got great stuff going on under the surface. I, I feel like there's a shelf space problem, right? There's, I mean, you walk around the tabletop, you know, and you look at all, and not, not even Kickstarter, just the stuff that actually got made already. Yep. There are so many new games coming out every year that I'm finding it a, a curation problem. There's no way I'm going to be able to play all the new board games that came out last year any more than I'm going to be able to play all the new games that run through the Paradox catalog. Mm -hmm. You know, with any... Uh, How many know, of those have you played, Julian? <laughs> uh, not enough. But, um, no, but, but, but the point is, it's like, I, I'm finding it difficult, and, and this is something I spend a lot of time paying attention to, right? And we podcast about it every week. Like, prioritizing, well, should I be playing Crusader Kings 2, which actually has yes. a PR campaign? Well, it's a great <laughs> Obviously, you should. Yeah. I love it. But, um, you know, but that's got a PR campaign, and that's, you know, that's as close to you get as a to a AAA strategy title in a lot of ways, in terms of the polish level and the amount of money that's put behind it and the marketing behind it. But then there's like another 11 games that you guys released that, you know, are in much more niche wargamey parts of the market. I see that problem in board games as well. I don't have a magic answer for it, but it seems like we're, we're facing that shelf space problem in spades. Well, one of the problems with strategy games, this is something that, I mean, I used to be uh, in the media, I was in games journalism, and my focus was on uh, strategy games. That's how I made my name, made my living writing and reviewing these, and I was a specialist, which is great and cool. It also meant that because I had to play all of these strategy games to stay up to date, I kind of ended up not getting any good at FPSs, but that's okay. No one ever plays Gears of War with me anymore. They understand this is a bad idea. Uh, but <laughs> since I've moved out, um, and since a lot of people from my generation of games journalism have moved out, there was, during the, con the, re the rise of the consoles, young games journalists moved to play a lot of console games. That's what they wrote about, this is what they knew, because these were the big popular games. There weren't a lot of strategy games there. So there's kind of this generation gap where there isn't these curators, these critics, these commentators who can distinguish and talk about these games knowledgeably. I'm not saying you all should listen to reviewers because most of us, except for Rob Zachney, are <laughs> kind of idiots. But, yeah. oh, oh, Rob's plenty of an idiot. Rob, he's, uh, given his size, yeah, I guess there's going to be a certain large amount of idiot. Uh, but, <laughs> but we, the, so there's this curation problem even in the critical space where people can't be pointed towards 
good strategy games by voices they trust. Uh, so they end up going to official forums, which is fine, but they're generally targeting the developers, and they have their own access to grind. There are larger forums, and you, but you end, you end up relying on the, the wisdom of crowds. And the great thing about the wisdom of crowds is often they'll find something you haven't heard of. The bad thing about the wisdom of crowds is they're a crowd and they're a mob. And sometimes they'll chase the greatest thing. And sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes they find a Minecraft, and the crowd runs towards Minecraft. Or they run towards Dwarf Fortress, and dwarf, neither of which are really strategy games. But sometimes there's a really great game that a few journalists might have played. They aren't getting published because editors won't run them. Because they say, look, my audience isn't interested in that. I'm in PR now. I get that a lot. My audience is not interested in writing about this game. And they don't know what their audience is interested in. I think a lot of games editors and games journalists underestimate you all and underestimate your intelligence and underestimate the type of games you might actually be interested in if you gave it a shot. And strategy games have this reputation. I mean, we've used their niche a lot. I kind of want to get away from using the word niche for strategy games. So I think the more we say it's a niche game, the more we reinforce the idea that it's a niche genre when it isn't. It is a large genre. It's expansive. It's probably no other genre covers any different types of games, the strategy games. Where you well, have hang on. The, the Sims oh. is, look at the, the Sims is a strategy game. Oh, God. And yep. the Here Sims is... Hang on, let's put the plan out the window. Let's argue what is a strategy game. And <laughs> no, 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 don't do that. Hang right himself right now. <laughs> no, but see, I actually disagree with you, though. Because, yeah. you know, I, I think it's good to say a game is a niche game. But one of the things I'm starting well, I'm, to... I'm not saying we, I'm not saying we can't say a certain game is a niche game, but I think that too often we just throw the word niche around in this genre without explaining what would make it appealing to other people. And I think we've just reinforced the idea that strategy games are niche if we just return to the word niche constantly. Yeah, it, that does tend to be like a ghettoizing term, certainly. But at the same time, like when I look at like paradox games, for instance, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, when you're looking at when you're assigning like review scores for, for an outlet or something, you've got you know you get those tiers of how good is the game, and like the highest tier is like I recommend this to anyone. Uh, and, and that's really kind of that's that's kind of bullshit, right? Like, I mean, there's very few games that actually like anyone who plays games at all is going to be like, well, it's it's so clearly a brilliant game that you'd have to be a fool not to love it. What I'm starting what I'm starting to realize, I, I come across this again and again in strategy games, and even more so if you look at like, you know, in the board game space, like look at the games that uh, GMT puts out. You know, these really like niche war games where. You know, one of the things about strategy games is that I think it's okay to say this game isn't going to interest you unless you're, like, really excited about this topic. And this is what Paradox sure. does. Right. Like, you know, maybe you're not into, you know, mid-19th century uh, colonial policy or something. In which case... <laughs> Why not? You know, I mean, <laughs> and if you're not, shame on you. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> but but I, think, I, think, I, I think it's a good thing, though. I, I think one, one of the... Something I'm trying to get away from, in fact, is like treating every strategy game as if you know they all exist on this continuum of like good strategy game. Like I'm increasingly just accepting that I'm probably going to enjoy Crusader Kings, for instance, much more than I'm going to enjoy a Victoria, because the idea of I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. No. no, Victoria Two is a great game, and it's it's on the farm in New Hampshire. Oh, uh, <laughs> he wouldn't be sorry. It's, it's installed on a computer in a farm in New Hampshire. It's great, and people are playing with it, and it's loved. Uh, <laughs> 
No, but, but like, I compare that to like Crusader Kings 2, and it's like Crusader Kings 2, I, there's just like, you know, I'm a little more interested in the topic of feudal politics, for instance, like dynastic, you know, struggle. And, I, you know, that's one of the things that's exciting about strategy games and a limiting factor. Yeah. But, but I think it's something yeah, I, I we need to... I don't want you to misunderstand what I was saying. I don't want to say that all strategy games are for everybody, because that is just patently absurd. Um, but I do think that editors and readers and have a responsibility to not just say, well, a priori, nobody in my audience could possibly be interested in this, so we're not going to cover it. I think I'm getting a lot of that uh, from now that I'm in PR. When I was on the other side, I was pitching stuff left and right. And a lot of editors just, eh, you know, who really, write, who really reads about this? Well, you don't know unless you put it out there. I've had editors say, look, we did a reader survey, and the most popular genre was role-playing games, but strategy was second. And like, action games are way down there. We had no idea. Well, of course you had no idea, because you read about Call of Duty every freaking day, because you like Call of Duty. <laughs> but you don't know what your audience is liking until you ask them or talk to them or write to them. Well, and I think this is the problem with strategy game coverage in general. That, yes, there are niche games, and yes, Victoria 2 will like the farm very nice, and Crusader Kings 2 <laughs> is a, it's a beautiful game, but do you want to make Crusader Kings 2 special? It's, anybody can get it. If you watch Game of Thrones, you get Crusader Kings 2, because it's about a dynasty, it's about a family, it's about deceit, it's about staying in power. These are things you see in the tutors, you see in TV. Yes, the interface isn't perfect. Yes, the tutorial is useless. <laughs> oh, no, I never did the tutorial, so I'm fine. You know, that's not but, me. <laughs> but it is elegant, beautiful, in-game help. The stability is amazing. The, I, it is a game I love to lose. And that's strategy game from the few genres. You can have as much fun losing as you can winning because you're telling stories that nobody else has told. You play a role, you play through Skyrim, you're running through the same quest as everybody else, and what? you can only tell the story. You can only tell the story of your adventure in Skyrim to somebody who's never played it. Because I'm oh yeah, I remember that part. Playing Civilization, yeah, you know Montezuma's going to screw you because Montezuma <laughs> screws you, but he screws you at a different time in a different way every time, and it's your story. <laughs> and this will make strategy games special. It'll make Crusader Kings two special, and everybody can get that. And I think that editors, and I think writers, and I think gamers should stop letting game sites tell them they're too stupid to get strategy games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you're going to flip the table. Um, as, you can, as you can tell, it's my first caffeine of the day. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't kick the microphone and say, I'm out! <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking, you know, the, the title of this panel is also about what we want to see more of. And, and I've been sitting here sort of trying to noodle that in my head. And one thing that I think addresses this whole issue about, you know, is it a niche? Are we too narrow-minded? Can we get across the, the thresholds of attention span? Um, what I want to see more of and what I think we're starting to see more of is, is actually just blending all the niches together, right? And, and so when I think of a game like Risk Legacy, uh, in the board game space, part of why that was so interesting to me was it was taking stuff that we take for granted in the video game space, the idea of permanence, right, that you're playing a thing that lasts a long time and you're not playing it all in one two-hour block, you're playing, you know, a game of, I mean, as far as I can figure out, a game of Crusader Kings 2 lasts forever. I, I haven't quite <laughs> yeah. figured that out. So, uh, you know, th that idea of permanence and having your own personal experience through a long game Bridging over into board games, I find really exciting, just as much as I find board games bridging over into my strategy games and even other games. I mean, Rage had a card game in it. You know, I mean, I love the fact that we're starting to see more of that blending. 
um, it's going to make guys like your job a lot harder because it's going to, you know, this definitional thing of what is a strategy game. If you get the beat to cover strategy games, you're going to, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, actually, no, let me take that back. I'm not screwed because actually that means there's going to be more jobs for more strategy writers, and that's that's going to be the change. Is that the idea that like you know there's room in the, room in the in the games writing space for like one me or one Troy Goodfellow at a time, and like you know you, you like outlets can't sustain more than that. I think that's that's increasingly going to be a fiction because there's simply going to be too much happening, and you're going to need people to cover that you know in depth. And the other thing is that. Um, you know, a lot of these games. A lot of these games are increasingly specialist, and you can, you know, you can't do. You know, you can review a shooter in like 15 hours of play, 20 hours of play. You know, try doing that. Try doing that with a paradox game. You know, it's that's that's not. Well, an isn't easy that task. how long the tutorials usually are? Come on, Chris. Chris is really happy. Maybe paradox in order to take some oh. shots at Stardock. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> by the time someone else had to go, you know. <laughs> Well, I would actually say, you know, we throw niche around a lot with strategy games, and as a developer, I don't want to be niche. I'd like to be mainstream. And the main reason is, you know, you want to do the best you can. You know, you want to, you know, you know, you know rise up with your games and do new things and do better things. And part of the function of that is um, the budget you're going to get to develop with. So, you know, the, the more mainstream your game is, you know, the more people are likely to buy it. And then, obviously, the more budget you, 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 know, you, you will get to use to actually make the game. So I think you know, one trend I think we are doing is kind of moving away from the micro details. I mean, it used to be a strategy game on PC was judged by what small features it managed to grasp during the whatever period it was looking at, or at least in history. And we're moving away from that and going for far bigger picture, which then means you don't have so many buttons to press. and You don't get lost as you start to just try and figure out what the hell is going on because you've suddenly, you know, your, your whole kind of track of game has been disrupted by this kind of almost like mini game they've thrown in, due, you know, in the middle of the game. So I can see like strategy games themselves becoming more streamlined, simpler interfaces, which then are easier to learn, and then more people can get into them. Yeah, I think a, an excellent example of that is uh, Unity of Command, which mm. hopefully everyone here checks out. Um, it's, uh, it's a game, uh, I guess technically a war game, but it's a very clean design, excellent UI, and it's just a ton of fun to play, and it really does some interesting things that you don't see in a lot of other games. And I think that's a good example of kind of this new generation of strategy game that we're, that we're gonna start seeing. Um, in, in terms of uh, budget that you were talking about, uh, one of the things that I would like to see, and I think we'll see, is the role of Kickstarter really making strategy games even even bigger than they are right now and giving more diversity to the genre. Um, I know uh, that's, that's something that's really kind of taken the games business by storm in the last few months. Um, you know, there's probably a number of people in here that have uh, heard about uh, what Tim Schafer's doing at Double Fine or Wasteland 2 or several of the other games that are being uh, funded on Kickstarter now. And I'm really hoping we see that take off and create a space for games that don't cost five or ten million dollars and if somebody has a really good idea they can just go and, and, and make it and we've seen that a lot in board games already I'm really hoping that becomes entrenched in computer games as well yeah I, I definitely think like 
you know, as far as how Kickstarter is going to shake out over the long term, it seems like it's going to be a much more natural fit for sustaining small like strategy development and board game development, much more so than say like, uh, you know, you're not going to like kickstart a Fallout Three scale game. Well, I don't think. Ever. You know, I mean, the the funny thing is, right? This is how Squad Leader's been living for years, right? Squad Leader's been living in a perpetual Kickstarter cycle of their own, where they don't reprint a product until they get 500 or however many people it is for that print run to prepay, right? To essentially commit to buy. They take your credit card number, and the day they say they're going to press, they charge your credit, and that's how Squad Leader lives today. It's, it's a self-kickstarted thing. So, I mean, I, I agree completely, and it's a, it's a model that is not only natural, it's one that's already there, already working, and already a business. Yeah, going back to the point, though, of, like, simpler games and everything, I, I still feel like we've got a ways to go before we get to, I, I think, one of the, like some of the really great strengths of board games, which is the ability to sort of comprehend the entire game. Because uh, that's not something I get to with, that's not a point I get to with a lot of, you know, PC strategy games, but it is something I get to with a lot of board games where I start to, I can really understand now how all the pieces fit together, and it's sort of like the sense of discovery for me. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges as a, anytime you're designing a game where the rules are being managed by people, is um, less is more. Right? And so how do you abstract things? Instead of being able to go into granular detail in many places, you have to try to get the same effect and the same strategy from, from fewer rules that everyone can sort of get. So you're dealing with like themes and sort of topics that encourage people to feel the strategy, but sometimes not get as much, obviously not get as much depth as anything you would get in a digital space because it's just not feasible to do so. So Rob, what do you want to see going forward in the board game space? Whether you get to do it or whether you just get to play somebody else's game that manages to pull it off. Um, I'm a sucker for games with story myself. So, I mean, I like games that have, like, uh, it, de it depends what I'm talking about, uh, which games I'm playing. If I'm playing games with my kids, I want one thing. If I'm playing games with, with friends, I want another thing. But I really enjoy sort of these offbeat mechanics in games that have been coming out for the past 10 years. It's like, you know, the um, Dominion with this self-building deck, you know, game. And you're kind of like, wow, that's interesting. No one's thought of that before. And sort of finding these new places that design can go because... In order to do something different, you have to kind of do something different, not get bigger, not get louder, not sign a big band to make your soundtrack for your game. Like, there's a lot of, you can't hide. I think the, John was talking about that last night. When you, do, you know, you can't hide in a, a card game. It, either the game works or the game doesn't, right? There's no, it doesn't explode or something like that. <laughs> <It looks awesome. laughs> a card game does not crash. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, but board games do crash, actually, because if you don't understand the rules. It was, right. I was thinking that up when someone said crash before about the game being stable and not crashing. I'm like, board games crash all the time where you're like, oh, no, we were doing that wrong for an hour. And you're like, oh, oh God. <laughs> Very soft crash. Um, what I would, what I would like to painful. see in the board game space actually is someone, and it, please help us, um, is reinvent how you learn a game. Right? It's the only form of sort of entertainment where you have this reading comprehension test followed by an oral thesis before you even get started. Right? And, uh, and it really does limit what the type of people who are willing to play a board game and the, and the success of that first experience with a game because if you had to do that with a TV show where it's like, oh, we want to watch a new show and then someone has to kind of explain it and do stuff and you work and then, okay, and you're sitting there for 20 minutes and you just wanted to watch TV and then you watch the show, but the guy who read it got it wrong, so like a couple scenes are missing and someone speaks in German. <laughs> and you're like, this, is, this show is awful and it's really not the show's fault, it's the person who like got you to starting the show. And so 
I've seen a lot more rules go on now to YouTube where you sit down, sit, sit down with that book, you oh, forget this, and you take whatever device you have and you just watch someone explain it. And it's an interesting thing. But I'm really looking to see if, if board games can do that th uh, thing that digital games do, which is just start playing and we're going to teach you as you go along. And I don't know quite how it's going to do it yet, but that would be the thing that would excite me the most. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, I would say with, um, with PC strategy games, and it's not so much simpler. Because obviously, you know, with the, with the power of a PC, you can get in all the granularity, and the PC will do all the number crunching. But you're looking for focus, you know, I, you know what is important, and focusing on that. Mm -hmm. And the key thing is more presentation, how you're going to give information back to the player, and also, like, the buttons are going to press to influence it. Because if you give them, like, 20 buttons, you know, they're, they're going to go, oh, what do I do, what do I do? If you give them two or three clear buttons, here's your choices, here's your effects, you know, the game instantly becomes easier to play, even if it's still just as complex. So you can keep complexity, but it's all about the, the developer staying focused on the player. Yeah, that's actually something that um, I just wrote an article about um, last week, and that, um, in a lot of ways, Providing players with limits is a good thing because, if, like you were just saying, if you have 20 buttons, you know they probably don't all do something very important. Whereas if you have three buttons, hopefully all three of them do something important. They could still not be, but then that's the designer's problem. Um, but I think that trying to trying to keep player focused and making sure that everything that they're spending their time on mm -hmm. actually matters and. Um, I'm thinking that we're going to see kind of a convergence between board game design and and computer game design, um, not across the board, but I think um, you know Risk Legacy on on the board game side is a good example of that uh, that we talked about a little bit ago, and also uh, games becoming cleaner and more understandable in terms of what they present to the player because um, something that is easy to forget, but it's very important when you're working on a game is that the experience of the game is all in the mind of the player. So if, you, if you're making a game and you're writing rules and, and you have this vision in your head of how great the game is, that doesn't mean the game is great. It, all that really matters is how the players are experiencing the game and however you can get to that um, to make sure that somebody actually involved with experiencing the game is getting what you want. That's, that's very important. And it's really easy to forget yeah. that it's the entire experience is in the player's head, and whatever you can do to make that more interesting is is ideal. Yeah, I'd say both board games and PC games. You know, you've always got to make sure that no matter what situation that you're in, the player has at least two good choices to make and a trade-off between them, because that's how you're going to drive the experience. You know, rather than going. Well, you know, press button A if you're stupid, or button B if you're not. It's right. not, you know, it's not, <laughs> well, not but, meaningful, you know. But but sometimes that I see developers like I I, I played um it's King Arthur role playing game mm -hmm. that, that's the, the official, fantasy the, war game the fantasy yeah. war game whatever it was role called playing. role playing role playing whatever it was role called playing. King Arthur the whatever we're gonna call it. Strategy um, it is it is the worst name ever. <laughs> Um, it's not the worst game ever, though. I mean, I quite enjoyed it, but often the choices... I, I sort of felt like somebody read your article about limiting player choice, and then they would present you with, like, one from column A or one from column B without really ever understanding the implications or what it meant for your longer-term strategy. And so it, I felt like somebody had said, well, this is a good information delivery 
you know, ethos to have, but then they didn't actually make the game Good. that was going to work with that, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I actually wanted more granularity half the time when they were telling me I could choose, you know, the blue pill or the red pill, and I wanted less granularity when I got on the battlefield and could make anybody do anything I wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it's... Um Okay, I guess I got I got I got to back on Chris a little more in paradox. Yeah, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> I'm sure we could pick on John. Maybe yeah, people I mean, will get around to that later. He's smaller than me. Kind of stunned him, you know. No, no, but I, but I do find that interesting because this is actually something that I see more in. Well, maybe it's just games coming out of out of paradox. But like the idea of you you have these like like story event choices. Like there's there's more attempts to create narratives within the framework of a strategy game. And paradox has always had elements of this. But with like Crusader Kings two, uh, it really you know takes it a step farther where now you've got like little like uh, you know morality plays like happening in, in, in your royal court but it does sort of seem like you know some of the choices you face in that game are like you can save ten dollars and get testicular cancer or you can pay ten dollars and you know that won't happen and, and, and it seems to me there's a clear choice there we speak we may a little bit more to go there but you know it's definitely something we are we're thinking very hard about you know in, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, there's these kind of things um, with the events in Crusader Kings 2, there's actually about seven or eight choices, but we actually hide some according to what type of person you are. You know, it's like um, if you're a lustful character, you don't really get the choice when a woman comes into your bedroom, you know, you just go for it, you know. So, you know, <laughs> so, so we, but the problem with that then is, yeah, I might have set up four or five really good choices, but then I've got to try and think the next level of, which choice is I'm actually going to present to you at all times, and then you've got to try and sort through them all. You know, so it becomes a, a far more deeper thought process when you're starting to you know, have multiple choices, but then we'll only give you some of them at any given time. So, yeah, yeah you know, it's something you know, we, we think about and we work on and we always try and improve. Uh, so as we get to move toward like, the question phase, I, I thought I'd just... Um, you know, so, so Rob has told us that what he wants is games that... like teach themselves better, like you to streamline the learning process. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to get a bit of a wish list from the rest of you, uh, starting with Troy. Um, I want game developers to pay more attention to art. I want them to have, uh, and we have beautiful high-res monitors. <laughs> and for a long time they would use the high-res monitors. Oh, that, this means you could have more text you can read legibly. And really, <laughs> Hi, Chris. <laughs> And, you know, that's not exactly the best use of it. Uh, but it makes, because strategy games are ideally they're icon driven, it's about being able to look at the map and knowing your situation. Yes, we want to drill down into some menus, but you should be able to look at the map and at least have an idea okay, am I making progress or not? So, better use of art and UI. Learn how to use colors, learn how to use icons, learn how to use symbols better. Um, I love I mean, the Paradox guys, these are my peeps. I don't need 50 different map modes. Find a way to give me this information. I'll list the important stuff on the map mode, uh, on the main map, on the main screen, instead of having to click a bunch of buttons. Okay, this one, where, is there, where are my religions distributed? Press a button. Which provinces are likely to revolt? Press a button. There should be ways to use the art and the UI and bring all of that together in a better Unity. So that's what I want. I want strategy developers to pay more attention to art. Because Unity of Command is a great example. Yes. Simple, simple war game teaches lessons of supply you don't get in more complicated war games because it's really all about supply and the art is beautiful. Uh, Chris? Um, well, I've got to agree with Troy on the art front. It's definitely something that we are looking at. But I would say the, probably the biggest thing is the point I raised earlier is um, quality is what 
well, definitely for PC gamers, we're really going to have to focus on, you know, the average gamer just simply will no longer put up with a game that will take two, three patches to be playable. You know, and it's, you know, it's going to hurt you in the long run because, you know, people just will not buy your games. It's quite simple as that if they don't think they're going to work. So I think, you know, definitely strategy developers in PC and I probably suppose board games as well, you know, you've got to focus on quality, focus on getting a game that works and delivers to people because when they fork out their money, they expect to be entertained, you know. And not, not having the developer going, are you not entertained? This is going to sound arch, and I assure you it's not meant that way. Um, but releasing games that have maybe had to go through a few painful patches has not seemed to hurt Paradox any. In fact, when I go to the Paradox forums, uh, you know, in a strange way, actually, it seems to create a sort of customer loyalty when you release something a little imperfect, but then you take care of customers after the sale and, and fix the game. Uh, actually, I mean, if you take Hearts of Victoria 2, which is a game after Hearts of Iron 3, you know, we started the pre-order campaign and it was dead. And it was only after we brought out the demo and people had a look and saw that the Victoria 2 was going to be in a far better state than Hearts of Iron 3 was, that our pre-order sales actually picked up. So we had actually, you know, we had run out of loyalty by Hearts of Iron 3. It was quite simple, but, you know, we tapped it. Yeah, yeah, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd drawn on so, the loyalty so bank. So, okay. you know, it was an account, you know, you draw it down, and then you've got to pay back the people who have been loyal to you. And, uh, John? Um, I think what I'd like to see the most is for developers to work harder to get players into their games and learning how everything works. And this kind of touches upon what, what Rob was saying about uh, board games as well. Um, it's it's easy for developers to forget how hard their games are to learn, especially in strategy games, and I think that is one of the biggest barriers of entry. Um, no matter how simple your strategy game is, even something like Farmville, the first time you open up the screen and you see what's going on, you're like, oh boy, okay, now what? And most, most studios don't spend that much time trying to get you over that hurdle. They just, they're so familiar with the game that they don't even think about it. So one of the things that I really want to see is uh, an easier ramp into the game, whether it's through um, an integrated tutorial or pacing or, or whatever uh, developers think is the best fit for the game. Um, and I, I think providing a demo for your game is also an excellent way to, to get people involved. And this is kind of related, but um, I think that with strategy games, it's so hard to sell them on, okay, look at the pretty graphics. Hey, this is the kind of fun you'll be having. You actually have to get in there and play things and, and, and learn for yourself how, how much fun the game is going to be. And the best way to do that is with a demo. So kind of wrap those two together and say, um, I'm hoping to see more and more developers find ways to bring new players into their games. I, I've, I've already, I started this. So you already hit me. Yeah, but did you actually say what you wanted? Oh, what I want? Um, I, no, I, I want to see more of these crossovers. I want more, I want more chocolate in my peanut butter. Right? I mean, I, I play a lot of different kinds of games, and I love it when games are surprisingly strategic that I thought were first-person shooters, or you know, games that were really just core strategy games surprise me with really great storytelling elements. Right? So I, I'm, I'm excited for that because I'm seeing more of it every day. So I feel like I'm already getting what I want. Uh, and for my part, what I want to see is uh, some questioners. We got about ten minutes, about yeah. ten minutes here for questions. Uh, there's a microphone right over there. Uh, before the questions begin, I will just emphasize this one thing: it has to be a question. 
And not a prime minister's right. question where it's like you make a long statement right. and then no, say, no would the gentleman good agree? Fellow speeches? <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would you agree that you're a right honorable corrupt mm, bastard? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Hi, uh, I'm a big uh, Sergi fan players, and uh, but uh, one of the things I've been uh, finding in a lot of uh, the game I've been playing recently is like uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, I don't know, like the, what we could call like the downward spiral where you know you keep on winning and a lot of often on Sergi's game like civilization or Victoria too, for example, as you as you win you start winning more and there's a downward spiral and suddenly all the tension goes down. It's not that interesting to play and don't want to drudge through that three or four hours and. I find it sometimes an issue, so, like I've been playing other games like uh, AI War, which is also a strategy game, would keep up tension going up, and a lot of new games like FPS keep that tension up, so I don't know if you guys have idea of how you want to tackle that challenge in the future. Before we get into that question, actually, I would just point out, we actually did a show uh, early yeah, on in Three Moves um, Ahead's history. If you're not familiar with uh, Three Moves Ahead, we're a podcast devoted to strategy games, and we've just joined the Idle Thumbs podcast network, so if you know Idle Thumbs. Uh, they're not giving us any of their money, but they're letting <laughs> us join them on their show. But er early in Three Moves Ahead history, we did a show about the snowball effect, where you just get so big and so powerful that the game kind of loses momentum. You have so much momentum, the game itself loses momentum. You're just conquering the world. Civilization balances this somewhat in some cases, but if you get really good really early, Civ 5 wasn't as good as this as Civ 4 was. Uh, no offense, John. But certain of the Civ games have been able to do this. European Rosalis does it a bit, but once again, if you know the system, you can game it and game it and game it. Really, the best way to manage it is to have some sort of inertia, to have the goals be so clear, or to make the game, okay, you've snowballed, you've won. Don't have a time limit on the game, but you're just so big, you're so dominant, you win, it's over. And therefore, call it complete, you're just too good at the game. Um, also, managing difficulty levels is a big problem in strategy games. I don't think uh, developers really understand how good players can be, especially if they understand the systems. John, I, I wanted John? to hear what yeah. John might actually do to solve this problem. Because yeah. you, you mentioned the fact sometimes Civ gets this, sometimes Civ doesn't. Yeah. I mean, John? were you wrestling with that with Civ 5? Yeah, and uh, I agree. It was, uh, it's, it's still an issue, and it, it's something that does need to be addressed in, in a lot of different strategy games. And I think his, historical games are more challenging because there's fewer opportunities to kind of stop that. If, you know, if you're a super powerful empire and the game is about building an empire, then you probably have to introduce something pretty unfun like Civil War in order to slow the player down. So the real challenge is finding um, and coming up with systems that are integrated into the basic design that make sense, that feel right to the player, that don't feel like they're being cheated when something bad happens. And yeah, it, it, needs, it needs to be done, and uh, it hasn't been done very well to this point. Yeah, I mean, you have two challenges on the design front. One is that people do like to win. So you can't, you know, you know, that's one thing, you know. And the other thing is that people don't like to be arbitrarily punished, you know. Like, you know, we turn around and say, yes, you're really good now. So what we're going to do is take half your territory off you and you can fight that instead. And, you know, people are going to go, oh, I was winning, you know. So, you know, I mean, that is, a, that is a real challenge with these design things is to try and come up with constraints that a player is willing to buy into. And either, you know, you either got to set up a narrative that will allow players to go, ah, yes, I see. Or, you know, they've got to be, you know, just so obvious to a player that they go, yeah, okay, yeah, I understand why things have been done this way. Yeah, I think, I think Crusader Kings 2 is actually an excellent example of a game that is going, a good, going down a good path and properly 
properly addressing uh, that that problem and because uh, well, things can get ruined every generation right. like the, the game flips like with yeah. every succession and yeah. because it's built into the game because you know that okay my king is going to die and be replaced with a new king and there's going to be problems it doesn't feel like you're being cheated as as you would be if okay you know you're you're above 10 cities let's roll a die and oh you rolled you know you rolled a six that means one now uh yeah, one of your cities uh, splits off, and you have to go reconquer it. Hang on, you know, though. That I, feels I, just arbitrary, and nobody's going to have fun with that. I have a question for the questioner, though. <laughs> okay. Ask <laughs> questions, we answer. I'm just, I'm just real quick. Do you reload when things go wrong? Uh, uh, yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Oh. Okay. Oh. okay. Oh. I should have asked that first. <laughs> Next right. question. Well, <laughs> I've been looking back at the SSI games, and I was wondering if there were any that were your favorite, and any that you thought perhaps should be remade, and or the mechanics remade. Now. Imperialism. Imperialism. Yeah, that's all imperialism. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, I actually loved Red Lightning. Was my favorite. <laughs> uh, Rachel Bernstein, the Spike Brothers, and Imperialism, and Imperialism Two. They're just two of the best designed, best yeah. balanced, most elegantly beautiful games I've probably ever played. Um, Ms. Bernstein's now at EA, and I think one of the Spikes is as well. She doesn't know who owns the IP now. <laughs> no one um, does. No Welcome one does. One, this is one of the strange yeah. things about our business. Companies get broken up and scattered, so no one knows who owns imperialism IP. But a game like that, that uses that core design of resource gathering, politics, and imperialism, that is the one SSI game I want to see on iPad. Yeah, the, the thing that made that game so unique, I think, uh, for me at least, for people who haven't played it, um, is that a lot of the decisions were centralized. So as the game progressed and your empire got bigger and there were more things going on, the micromanagement of the game didn't just explode where it does in a lot of the games like Civ where, okay, I have one city, I do you know one thing per turn, now I have 20 cities and I do 500 things per turn. In imperialism, that's much more balanced where maybe you have five things to do first turn and 10 things to do on turn 100. It was really unique in that regard. All right, thank you. Next question. Um, particularly with regard to computer games, how do you see uh, changes in AI sort of affecting or influencing the game design? Partic I'm, you know, mainly I'm thinking in terms of single-player games, you see things like uh, the Paradox games, or especially like mods to Civilization, where there's all these really interesting mechanics, but it's very hard to play them single to play single-player games because the AI doesn't get it and then mm -hmm. acts in very strange ways. Yeah, I think that's... AI and game design are kind of the same thing uh, because knowing what your AI is going to be able to do and how it's going to be able to, be able to use certain systems affects the player's experience just as much as a, any game mechanic. And I think you, you definitely have to be thinking about AI when you're, when you're designing something. And it's usually uh, kind of hard to do that when you're a modder, <laughs> fortunately. But for developers, I think that is something. It's another thing that we have to improve and work on, which is um, thinking more about what, what, how AI fits in as opposed to, okay, it's just somebody running another faction. Um, it has to be part of the experience and, and knowing that the AI is going to respond differently than a human would. Yeah, I mean, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, when, you know, the, you know as we, shall we say, mature as a genre, you know, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, we do sit down and think about going, yeah, we can set up this cool choice. And then the next question we ask is, will the AI be able to make the same decision with, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be good enough. And that's definitely, you know, something as, as a designer, we do, I think a lot, a lot about, you know, can the AI handle this? 
there's no point having this cool, awesome, deep mechanic, and we can put this really nice interface on it, so it's going to be easy for a player to do if the AI is just going to be useless, because that'll just wreck the game. Great, next question. Um, I wanted to know, why do you think so many uh, video games, especially like mainstream video games, focus on building a theme and then the mechanics or mechanisms around the theme instead of starting with, you know, solid, solid mechanisms and then building the theme on top? Like, you have a lot of um, popular Euro games, you know, Settlers of Catan and uh, Dominion to an extent, where they start with the, the mechanics first and then put the theme on top, and they've done well. So why haven't other mainstream well, games done something like that? Some of them have done well. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, you know, it's sort of a running joke about, like, Reiner Knizia games. They're just math with graphics, right? And, and I think, for me, <laughs> personally, when you get games like that, they actually lose something to me because the theme wasn't integral to how the mechanics were developed. And so, I, you know, as a player, I can't stand it when it's so obvious that here's a cool mechanic and we figured out how to bolt this theme onto it, or vice versa, where they said, look, we're going to make a game and it's going to be about cooking pasta, goddammit. And so they just <laughs> find some random mechanic to make the game about cooking pasta. But I mean, I mean, Rob, I know you've wrestled with this a lot. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, we were talking last night. Both, uh, I think both of us tend to design theme first because I want to tell a story, but you're right. If, if, if they don't work in, in harmony, then, then the player suffers as a result, right? Because you either have a dry game with a theme pasted on or you have a story with a weak game underneath it. Um, and so it, as a designer, you go back and forth and figure out what are the mechanics I can use to best tell the story, but what parts of the story of the theme am I willing to change if the mechanics aren't working? So I think either side presents an issue. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of depends a little bit on what the company's looking for. Um, you know, if you work for a company, they're like, we need a pasta cooking game, make it. <laughs> Right, then that's what you got to do. And they're more likely to say that than we need another worker placement game with like a slight twist of deck building, right? They're, that's, they're not going to ask for that. Um, and, and so I think it's just a more common thing that you'll, you'll see a theme being asked for and the mechanics fall short than the other way around. I think, I think you can approach it from either direction, but I think you have to figure out the other side almost immediately. So you say, okay, I want to make a game about cooking pasta. Okay, now let's think about mechanics that make sense for that. Or you can start from, okay, I have this interesting mechanic. What themes, what themes make sense for it? And, and figure that out, again, almost immediately. Because when you, if you do develop the mechanic enough to the point where it's, it's almost a game in itself, then it's almost never going to feel quite right. Yeah, and boy, when it, when it really works, when it's so obvious, I mean, A Few Acres of Snow, to me, is the perfect example of that, where it was like, oh, all these deck-building games didn't actually have any connection between the fact they were deck-building games and the theme, and then you play A Few Acres of Snow, and you're like, oh, that's why you would use a deck-building mechanic, right, to represent supply lines. It's perfect, right? So when you see it, it's perfect, but it's, I, it's pretty rare that it's that well-melded. Yeah, I would say that there, you know, I, we tend to start with themes because at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're selling entertainment. And so you're then trying to explain to, like, the, for example, our CEO, you know, we want to make this game, we know you can sell it. And he's going to say, okay, what am I selling? And, you know, you cannot sell a mechanic. You know, it's very hard to explain to people a neat mechanic, but it's easy to explain a theme. You know? And I think that's why you start with theme first and then move to mechanic. Cooking pasta. Everyone knows what it is. You know? yeah. I, I guess, yeah, one, one last quick thing, but it, you know, be, touching on what both Rob and Chris said, a big part of it is the business side. And 
unfortunately, sometimes that matters a if lot. If designers were in charge of the business side, would it, do you think it would be different? I think you'd see more of an even split. Right, yeah. Thank you. Thank Next you. question. So I guess I'm looking for, like, just going down the line, a recommendation for a, a kind of a game or a game platform that combines economics, politics, and, and media with the kind of, so you can get these random influences that are unexpected, like based on what a hot story is. And I'm, I'm looking for more than like, almost like the idea of running a new annual town meeting maybe is where the, all the ideas get kicked around. So it's kind of a wonky game idea, but. 1960, I mean, a campaign manager, which oh, yeah. is the, the two player version. I mean, those are board games on a, and there are online versions of them. From a video game perspective, I can't think well, of. Well, economics and politics, I mean. With media. Events. With media, geez. There aren't very it, many with pasta. There, are pasta. <laughs> there have been a few attempts to make modern political type games on controlling the United States today, etc., and trying to work in economics and politics and some media stuff, but they're generally not very good. Yeah. Because no. there's always this push to have a military component, and that just makes the player want to use it. So oh. all the other mechanics become subordinate. Okay. And if you give too many choices, and most of these games suffer feature creep. We want to have cabinet ministers, and we want to have economic embargoes, and 30 different kinds of treaties, and all of this stuff, and you just get overwhelmed, and they're very, very poorly designed. Um, I could give you the names of these games, but I've already said enough bad things about games today. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say, if, if you can make it... Um, we'll buy it. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll look at it. Yeah, we'll, we'll give a fair hearing. You know? I, th I, think, I think that's... Uh, that's um, an area that's ripe for games to jump in and take advantage of that. Get on that. I'm thinking about <laughs> it. We'll see. Nice give, me, give me a couple years. <laughs> Hello. Um, so in the beginning, when you were talking about why strategy games um, start bouncing back, and you were mentioning digital distribution as one of the reasons, um, I was wondering, actual better internet and like stronger um, multiplayer connectivity, matchmaking services. Do you feel, like, how do you feel that's made things better and how do you think that's made things worse? I'm not sure it's played that big a role. You don't play League of Legends. It's strategy. Uh, <laughs> well, is that a strategy? I, I would say that, no. oh. No, I'm not trying to diss it. I'm just yeah. like, I'm not saying League of Legends is crap because it's not a strategy game. I just don't agree that it's necessarily a strategy game, but. Yeah, no, let's not go with what is a strategy game. I would say definitely from the perspective we, of the we games just keep we going make, back. Um, it's actually a fairly small minority that actually play multiplayer. I mean, they are, you know, they, they love the games, they are, you know, part of your hardcore fan base, but um, it's not, you know, like 50, 60 percent. It's probably down about 5, 10 percent of the player base actually plays multiplayer. The majority of players I are mean, single player. If you're, players. if you're thinking StarCraft 2 or you're thinking Company of Heroes, I mean, these are real outliers in the strategy game market. And these are base building real-time strategy games, of which there are very few made now. Uh, you don't see the Age of Empires series is dead. The Command and Conquer series committed an ugly suicide, and it's still going as a oh, zombie, in its zombie form. Um, <laughs> there really aren't... Um, that genre, that subgenre has kind of... That was the, that was the big multiplayer part of strategy games. But people don't play Civ multiplayer. Uh, very many of them, some do. There's a few, no, yeah. but, it's a, but it's a very small the number, like, proportionally. Yeah. Um, you saw it at the back, yeah. I, I have a <laughs> weekly standing invitation to join a Civ multiplayer game, but it just 
it takes a long time. Well, but but I do yeah. think that one thing I've been hearing a lot more about now is like the asynchronous multiplayer as yes. something that's come alive for iPad and certainly like a few acres of snow we, and playing it on Yukata. Yeah, we we had asynchronous multiplayer when I was young. We called it play by email. Yeah. Um, we didn't have but, so but, you know it's not really new. It's just better and more efficient, and you get nudged and you get nagged if you don't play. Which play by email, you know, you could ignore that email for a while. Uh, it's harder to ignore your iPhone if, you know... And you had to attach a file like some kind of animal. <laughs> yeah. So. Hey, man, I'm old enough. I used to do that by mail, like with yeah. stamps. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah. So, you were a very lonely child. So, a- async, they're, they're, being a big asynchronous play, that's the big multiplayer yeah. advantage. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, but better internet, and that's good for digital distribution, right? You can download faster. I think, Thank you. I think multiplayer, um, another quick thing, um, we'll, me, we'll have... We'll have more of a more of a role to play going forward because you will see more uh, smaller games with budgets that aren't ridiculous and designers that have interesting ideas. I think games that work well in multiplayer have been made for multiplayer, and games that are made for single player are generally not as good. So when you have more games with more unique ideas, that leads that leaves more room and more opportunity to see games built around multiplayer um, and. I think we'll see a lot more of them in the next few years. Yeah. Cool. Next question. I was wondering uh, what your opinions on uh, MMORTS games are. You know, uh, when do you think the technical limitations for them you know, will cease to become a barrier? When do you think, uh, you know, if, they, if, you'll, if you think they'll ever become a sort of mainstream genre? I'm not sure it's a technical limitation thing at this point. Right now, like, right now my, my answer to your question is I'm watching End of Nations uh, very, very, very closely. Because I mean, I've seen like we saw like we saw that attempted with Age of Empires Online, but that was kind of an uncomfortable Frankensteinian monster. Yeah, no, I did try that game out, and I got to say, uh, it just didn't seem to work. The MMO and RTS together. The whole right. point of RTS is you start from scratch again. You know, the past is forgotten, and in MMO, the whole point is be persistent. So I mean, how can you balance those two? There's yeah, there's two challenges. There is a there's definitely a technical challenge there. In most MMOs. Things can be fudged a little bit um, in terms of networking. Um, anybody who's played an MMO has probably seen somebody like, when you're like, what happened there? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the technical side correcting. And um, the problem with an RTS is that the exact location of every single little dude moving around is extremely important, and you can't have little guys jumping at all. And so. There's definitely a huge challenge there. Um, I'm also very curious to see what yeah. uh, what that game provides. Um, um, but there's also a design challenge, which is that it's a very different type of game. I think um, RPGs definitely translate to an MMO universe much better than uh, strategy games, and it just hasn't been figured out yet. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks. All right, we're going to have to bum rush these last two questions. So, <laughs> Okay. A uh, quick question going back to the uh, multiplayer um, stuff that you mentioned earlier. That, for example, with StarCraft, a, a multiplayer session takes maybe an hour, two hours, whereas a multiplayer session of Civ or Victoria 2 is going to be a four, eight-hour um, grind fest. <laughs> and so will we be seeing, at least from the computer, from the video game developers, any uh, efforts to make quicker, more streamlined multiplayer experiences that can be completed in a lunch hour and afternoon. I think that's a, it's just another example of games needing to be designed for that. And then StarCraft obviously was designed with multiplayer in mind. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want matches to be 30 
minutes, 45 minutes-ish. Right. And the single-player missions are also that. Um, most strategy games that are designed as single-player first, again, they don't, they don't translate because you do have the, you know, the single-player game takes eight hours, therefore the multiplayer game takes eight hours. So I, I think that's another thing where as, as more types of games come out, you'll see more variety there and um, you'll see that space improve. All right, last Thank question. You. I was just wondering if you could comment generally on the outlook perhaps of the turn-based tactical RPG genre. Um, I haven't played many of them. I'll say that I know they are, tactical RPGs are interesting because it's kind of a sub-game within a larger genre. And, and I, th I think, you know, I think of, if you think look at Baldur's Gate, for example. I mean, all the battles were in fact tactical combat. But here we have this entire, this entire genre, largely coming out of Japan, which are tactical role-playing game strategy thingies that I just can't get my brain around. Uh, not that they're hard, uh, because I lost my DS. And there's... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I know that... Um, have any, are either of you guys, I know that if I have a lot of friends who play them. Some of oh, my yeah. best friends I mean, play I, those games. I mean, some of my favorite games of all time fit into that genre. I mean, Jean d'Arc on the PSP is one of my favorite games of all time, which I think fits the mold that you're talking about. Um, you know, I think the Western market has a love-hate relationship with those games, and sometimes they hit and sometimes they don't, often without any real logic to whether or not the game was any good. Um, so I, I think that market's alive and well. I think the marketing of those games is still challenging in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how the industry in Japan evolves over the next few years because that is the, it's pretty much where you see them all come from. And um, unfortunately, the, the industry over there isn't doing so well. Um, and uh, new consoles like the Vita just aren't selling at all. So it's, um, I don't know. It's, to be honest, it's not looking good. Um, hopefully, hopefully things turn around, um, and we'll start seeing some more uh, of those style of games coming out from the U.S. and Europe. Um, we haven't seen that too much yet, but keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> thanks. All right, I think that uh, wraps us up. So my thanks to the whole panel. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you for coming up. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> thanks for coming out.